Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I'm Ken Levine, your podcast host. Okay, this is part two of my two-part interview with Annie Levine and Jonathan Emerson. They are a writing team, also a husband and wife team, and they are the father of an adorable nine-month-old daughter, Charlotte, who you heard crying in the last episode. If you missed the last episode, uh, please go back after you listen to this one and check that out. Uh, A lot of very interesting stuff. Annie and John have worked on Good Luck Charlie, Kevin Can Wait, Instant Mom, Call Your Mother, Central Park, uh, and they are currently the executive producers of The Upshaws on Netflix, going into its third season, starring Wanda Sykes, Mike Epps, and Kim Fields. Uh, so this week we're going to get into current conditions in the industry. We're going to talk a lot about uh, the dynamics of a writer's room, of both an in-person writer's room and during the pandemic when everything was done on Zoom and what challenges that provided. Also, the current state of comedy and just why Golden Girls is so popular. So that's this week, Annie Levine and Jonathan Emerson, this week on Hollywood and Levine. Now you guys are on the Upshaws, starring Mike Epps and Wanda Sykes and Kim Fields. Congratulations going into your third season. You're the executive producers it's a Netflix show. What's it like working for Netflix? Great. Great. <laughs> um, it's the closest we've ever come to stories of how it used to be, where the executives trust you and just say, yeah, you guys know what you're doing. And they'll give you notes and you say, I don't want to do that. And they go, okay. <laughs> like It's just truly fantastic. Yeah. And we were coming off... Um, uh, working on Call Your Mother for ABC and the difference between uh, network right now and streaming is huge. It's huge. I mean, and the executives at ABC were were great. It's just they have all these different considerations. They have advertisers. They have strict time limits. It's 20 minutes and out, whereas Netflix says, eh, 23, 26, whatever. You know, it's, it's just more freedom they can offer. Yeah. Um, but it's just been great. Mm-hmm. You know, you bring up Call Your Mother. It's an interesting situation you guys were in because that was during the uh, pandemic and the lockdown. And you worked on the show and never met the cast, never yeah. set foot on the stage. Yeah. I, I guess you only met the writers after 
uh, you guys wrapped and and had a party. Yeah, we yeah. did a socially distant uh, meet and greet at the showrunner Carrie Lizer's backyard. Yeah, uh, it was. Um, there were a lot of difficulties, COVID related, um, of course. Yeah, that also goes to what you were saying about how all the executives were great, but there were addition all these additional. COVID limitations, COVID budgets, if nobody she knew. kisses her kid, it's a six-hour meeting about, okay, um, how far away will they be beforehand? When do we take the mask off? When do we do the – and oh, you go, yeah. uh, just lose Never it. Never mind. <laughs> just yeah. lose it. Never mind. Never mind. She'll high-five him. Like, yeah. whatever, whatever we can do to just make this end. Right. Um but as I mean, as an as weird an experience it was, it was also great. You know, everybody in the room was – Wonderful. Carrie Lizer is a, a dream ah, showrunner. Love Carrie Lizer. Um, talk about someone that just this is this is what I want. I know what I want, and help me get there. And you just go, okay, great. And you and she's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't listen to this. Um, and you I just, know that's why I don't care. And just you know, what's the funniest thing we can do here? And then also, what's the sort of most interesting thing we can do here? And just trying to make the best of a bad situation and and she totally did it it was it was really fun you also worked in new york for a year on uh, the kevin james show kevin can wait my daughter grimaces uh, <laughs> but you guys were not in new york you were in beth page long island yeah that was the grimace we you know new uh, york sounds sounds lovely. sounds yeah. like the city right right yeah <laughs> you were in beth page and uh it was like a former rocket factory yeah you couldn't drink the water. Yeah, because there's still too much rocket fuel in the soil. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But what we learned after the fact was that our friends who uh, grew up there in Bethpage, that when they were growing up, they used to advertise the best tasting water. <laughs> only to learn... glow in the dark. Only yeah. to learn that it's probably cancer-causing. Yeah, we couldn't drink the water while we were there. Uh, the studio was part of this sort of, yeah, this, like, industrial kind of park, so it shared a space with a casket company. Granola factory. And a granola factory. And it was built around the cemetery where the family that founded Beth Page are laid to rest. So you do your sort of quote-unquote lot walk at lunch to try to get out and get some sun, and you're just Walking past the, the was it the Powell family? family? Yeah, yeah. You're just, hey guys, how you doing? Yeah. And then you just you go, where where are we? <laughs> kind of the dream, isn't it, to be in a studio? Yeah, wow. oh yeah. Any uh, anytime we watch a movie and it's the back lot and there's you know Roman centurions walking past aliens, walking, you go no, yeah, <laughs> not our experience there. No, we had we had the granola factory. <laughs> also, I don't know. These offices were, but everyone's office was like closet sized. <laughs> it, it was. It was. It was weird. Yeah. It was. But there's so many shows now that they're filming all over, and I mean, we rarely are on what you would sort of think of as a traditional studio lot because there's 500 shows a year, and they're all jockeying for space, and you just have to go where the work is. Yeah, at Paramount used to be fun because they did all of the Star Trek shows. So you'd be standing in line at the ATM by the commissary, and there's like a Klingon in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. 
One thing about the Upshaws is you guys really, really work hard to make the show funny. And it's it's weird to me that 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 seems to be an anomaly these days, <laughs> that there are very few shows that call themselves comedies that even set out to make people laugh for 23 minutes. Yeah. Um, again, it's, it's just the luck factor that we just have such a funny room. I mean, it, I'm glad it seems like we're trying really hard. A lot of it is just someone says something hilarious, we type it up and go to lunch. But um, that's just a product. I mean, everything on a show is top down. It all comes from the showrunner. And we have Regina Hicks and Wanda Sykes, and they are just two pros. They've been doing it forever, and they are just adamant that they want the audience to laugh. They want you commit 23 minutes, 26 minutes of your time to us. You should leave feeling entertained. And that doesn't discount getting into – I mean, we deal with some real – stuff on this show, you know, the the sort of archetype when we uh, did season one was Norman Lear, you know, how can we put broccoli in the brownies? How can we talk about stuff that middle America is going through, but always just as funny as possible? And, you know, when you have someone like Wanda Sykes in the room, who just is the best at what she does, I mean, we go over every joke and it's, is this the funniest word? Is this the funniest way to do this? And and every now and then that's torture, but usually it's a great time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, talk to us at, you know, 11 o'clock when we're going, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Put the lentils in a jar. Yeah. But but then you you go to those tapings or you see it on the air and you're like, great. Yeah, that was worth it. That was really funny. Why is it less important that comedies today make people laugh? I mean, we're talking your generation. You guys, you guys are the target. Uh, why is it that shows that call themselves comedies might have an amusing moment here and there, but you just get the feeling that that's not really the objective is to make people laugh? Yeah, I don't. I still feel like the shows that do make people laugh are the ones that rise to the top and become popular. Um, clearly, like, Abbott Elementary is trying to make people laugh. And, and it's a huge hit. And, I mean, even, you know, Big Bang Theory went 11 years, and that was just joke, 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 joke. Um, I mean, with streaming and everything, it kind of starts to blur the lines, and it starts to... It's a... You know, The Patient is a half-hour drama, and Mrs. Maisel is an hour-long comedy. And it's it's kind of, I think, everyone's just sort of figuring out if the old labels apply. Um, but I think that, I mean, we're also assuming that the shows that aren't funny aren't trying. But <laughs> um, that's, my, that's my question, too, is I see some of these shows and I go... Is it just that the writers just don't have the chops to really turn out something funny, or eh, it's it's funny enough? It's it's acceptable today. What maybe thirty years ago would not have been acceptable now, it's like yeah, it's it's this is amusing. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just Get all... Get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, a lot of it is just whoever's show it is and what they're trying to do. Um, and I think people sort of forget that you can, you know, have dramatic moments in comedy and still be funny. I mean, on the family, Edith, you know, there's an attempted rape or they get into racism and they deal with heavy things. And then you're also laughing your ass off because Carol O'Connor was so funny and Gene Stubb was so funny. I mean, on Cheers, you guys tackled, you know, gay rights and things that at the time were, well, and, and sadly are still, but um, at the time were worth tackling and still very, very funny. Um, I also feel like uh, there's just so much now that um, there are going to be more misses. You know, I'm reading the Matthew Perry book right now and they're talking about how they like knew Friends was such a success. Like they really knew they had something right off the bat. But he's talking about all the failed pilots he was in or yeah. all the shows that went, you know, a couple seasons. And, you know, you don't think about the fact that there were <laughs> still a bunch of things that didn't go well, but there were fewer of them because there were fewer networks. Now they're... So many there. There's a lot of kind of spaghetti at the wall. <laughs> it does where... feel like there there were four networks and ten good shows, and now there's a thousand networks and ten good shows. Right. <laughs> exactly, but um, but you feel the weight of it more. Yeah. yeah. So and like we were saying with you know good writers, some of like a lot of them get you read the pile of great scripts and some of them are like amazing. And a lot of times those people are already have been hired on four different shows, you know, at the, everything is so spread out now that I think, I, I don't know that people aren't necessarily trying to be funny, but, um, well, and, and comedy, like anything, they're just, they're tropes that set in. I mean, you can watch dramas and feel, God, I've seen this a thousand times. This is, you know, the the hundredth lawyer show, and it's just like I've I feel like I don't even know, you know, you spin a big wheel and plug in three actors, and this could be anything. And and but with comedy, you feel it because there's sort of an objective, which is to laugh. And if you're not mm -hmm. laughing, then you you feel I think the the failure a little bit more. But audiences now have so much to choose from that. Yeah, there's there's a lot of bad shows, but the bad shows go away much quicker because there's just no the good shows go away too quickly. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just no time to figure it out either. You know, a lot of shows that alchemy doesn't necessarily set in until kind of near the end of the first season or maybe even the second season. I mean, a show like Parks and Rec, I hated the first season, and then the rest of the no, show was was it, brilliant, it was vastly improved. Yeah, that was vastly improved. Great. So show. if I were assigned to program a network. And they said, give me a show Tuesday night at 9 o'clock that is going to attract Gen X. I would program Golden Girls. Yeah, I love Golden Girls, obviously. <laughs> what is it about we're, we're Golden Girls? <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Uh. <laughs> what is it about Golden Girls in particular that younger generations really respond to? It's funny. It's funny. It's well, funny. there's a lot of funny shows. Cheers is funny, but Cheers doesn't have the same, um, I think, resonance that Golden Girls 
has. That, um, yeah, well, I guess Cheers has this too, but it, along with Friends, has that share that um, you get to sort of choose your family uh, vibe, which is so heartwarming, I think, to young people who are start finding themselves on their own and their friends are becoming their family and that um and i think those those storylines are um continue to resonate with people but yeah no they're they're funny and four of the best actresses to ever do it and they (laughs) got them all in a room Mm -hmm. um but there's also just the intangible factor of you don't know what's gonna last and and stand the test of time i mean a show like murphy brown was giant when it was on and it means nothing to me i missed it when it was on and i've watched a couple now and it's like i don't get this joke yeah I don't, I no don't it's get this well reference. it's very dated and they basically <laughs> made a deal with the devil by having it very topical and so at the time everybody was laughing at dan quayle jokes and General Westmoreland and people like that, and now you watch it and, and people are going, uh, who are these people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The yeah. other thing I'll say about Golden Girls, which is so funny because it's the opposite of everything that's on now and everything we're doing now, is <laughs> there were very few storylines that carried through mm-hmm. other than, like, um, Rose dating Miles, maybe. So it's like you can turn on a Golden Girls from any season and just at any it. time and just watch so there's it. no story arcs there's, there's no, no season long story no season arcs. long yeah i mean cheers had them sam and rebecca making a baby you mm-hmm. know there were there were um things you, you invested in <laughs> <laughs> it was a thing i could think of that lasted yeah. a number of episodes but yeah it's also um a show you can have on in the background. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of single camera shows, even the very funny ones, the the laugh will come from a look or a, a cut or something nonverbal. And so you have to be watching to laugh at it. Whereas Friends, Golden Girls, um, All in the Family, Everybody Loves Raymond, they're basically radio plays. You can just listen and laugh and do the dishes and... Yeah, I loved Arrested Development. I'm never going to throw that on. In the background. (laughs) In the background. You you have to watch Arrested Development to see all the jokes and see all the visual gags and laugh at everything. But, yeah, these shows, you can basically consume them anytime, anywhere and get the story and and get the jokes and, and enjoy yourself. Yeah, we always said that Cheers was a radio play. And you're right. I think one of the reasons why a show like Friends or Golden Girls Frasier work is because you can be in the kitchen and you don't have to be watching it. You know what Central Perk looks like. Right. And I do that. You know what Cafe Nervosa looks like. (laughs) Yeah, we do that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you're you're picturing it as it's it's happening, uh, which makes it, you know, very easy. Yeah. yeah. Friends is another one that resonates. And that I totally get because as each generation reaches that point in their lives where they are going out on their own and they're friends with their family, um, that I get. But 
you look at all of these shows, and the one common denominator is that they're very traditional. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. whereas networks keep saying, oh, we want something new, we want something different, we want something special. You're going, yeah, but <laughs> the shows that that are working are the shows that, that tend to be traditional. Why do you think there is such a stigma against multi-camera shows? Um, because people that make television forget that people in America don't watch as much television as we do. Like we have, you know, to, to break in, you watch everything to know what's going on. And you're trying to get a job. You watch everything. Network executives have to watch things to know what they're competing against. And so it all sort of piles up where you've seen the same thing a thousand times, but someone coming off of, you know, two jobs and they just want to sit down and watch a half hour of television a night and that's all they get, watches one thing. So they don't feel that everything is as repetitive as we sort of seem to think it is. Uh, so we're always trying to do new things and we're trying to push the boundaries. And, and a lot of that's good because it's, it's creative. But at the end of the day, there's also just fundamentals that you don't need to reimagine. I mean, Desi Arnaz put four cameras in front of bleachers and it's worked this entire time. So... I also feel like, again, with so much stuff, everyone wants to be the person who, like, finds the thing that they can recommend. Oh, my God. It's everyone, the worst. It's, it's the Everyone worst. wants to be the, have you seen this? And Well, because everybody wants their thing. Like, every show now is the greatest thing you've ever seen or the worst thing you've ever seen. It's like, most of them are just fine. <laughs> um, but everyone wants to feel like they're time that they spent watching something like they didn't miss out they found the thing right and so i imagine but i don't know because i'm not an executive and i i don't you know that i imagine that there's probably some sort of environment of like ooh, this is weird and different and new and maybe this if this hits it'll be squid game it'll be squid game it'll be such a weird cool discovery that people are willing to go out on a limb for some of this stuff and then maybe not necessarily willing to go out on a limb for a comedy that could be huge and funny because to them it seems like oh well we've we've seen friends before yeah we've we've seen a you know we've seen a middle class family before and you go yeah but when regina hicks and wanda sykes write it it's the upshaws and it goes three seasons and a lot of netflix shows don't like it there's a thing where we all sort of forget that execution matters and yeah you might have this really flashy fun premise and then like you said earlier what's what's week two Mm -hmm. you know at a certain point they're just people on an island at a certain point they're just you know working at a blockbuster and the characters have to be there and the Yes, <laughs> the characters have to be there, and the stories. I was have to trying be there. not to pan anything, but apparently you're... I haven't seen it. <laughs> I haven't seen it. I don't. I don't actually watch TV. I'll cut that out. <laughs> it's okay. The writers' room back in my day, back in the Pleistocene era, was wild and freewheeling, and pretty much a safe zone where anything goes and you could be as horrible and as sexist and as offensive as you possibly could be. Among all the other white men. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, how different is it now? Do you really feel that you have to walk on eggshells? No. No. I don't feel I have to walk on eggshells. But 
I mean, as your joke states, the rooms are much more diverse now, so you're not going to make a joke that would purposefully hurt somebody. Somebody. But I don't feel like anyone was doing that, would have done that anyway. I don't know how else Well, but most of our jokes purposely hurt each other. Oh, then those those still go. Anything personal, for sure. Oh, absolutely. We we rip each other endlessly and, and, you know, God forbid you spill something on yourself or trip or do an hour Or reveal something Something too personal. I've been trying to get my partner to wear a toupee. (laughs) 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 Just step into a writer's room wearing a toupee and and see what happens yeah but no there's this um sort of myth of woke rooms and you can't say anything and you can't do anything and at least in our experience that's not true but it's in the same way where if you make a just horrific joke out in public and someone kicks your ass over it that could happen in a writer's room. Like you're just, you're aware of people as people and you're not trying to say something horrible. I would say you have a little bit more leeway than the real world because everybody knows the intent behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, yeah, like personal stuff and all that, we definitely. I mean, there were times when somebody would say something in a room and we would go, uh, would you please repeat for the jury? Oh, we do that too. Uh, we do that. Yeah. Yeah, we do. Oh, we do that too. <laughs> yeah. We love that. And then he said. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah back to uh, Tom Anderson, who, who beers up for the job, once told us, he goes, I always imagine myself at the gates of heaven in front of St. Peter going, it was a bit. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit. It was a joke. Let me laugh. It's funny. It's funny. Uh, no, we do that too. We used to have in our last, uh, still on the Upshaws, but we switched rooms in our last writer's room. We had this weird sort of offshoot couch. And if you made a joke that was too horrible, you were supposed to spend five minutes in the, on the penalty, yeah, yeah, <laughs> on the on penalty that. couch. Now we're sort of in this glass box and we think someone should have to stand outside and just <laughs> put their face against the glass and, yeah. and look in. Um, no, on Instant Mom, we had a frowny face board, uh, which was... <laughs> Just my name with a bunch of frowny faces. Yeah, which yeah. was any joke that probably should have sent you to HR yeah. <laughs> uh, on another, in another uh, job. In a normal job, yeah. In a normal job would get a frowny face. And, and everyone would go, no, it was funny. It was, it was funny. Yeah. You have to, yeah. But uh, no, it's the same... Uh, stuff applies, and but you're always trying to foster a sort of team spirit and a sense of unity, and that you're all f- friends and sort of found family, and you're you're really trying to make it a place people want to come to work every day. So, and if you're a toxic person and you're making toxic jokes, jokes you, you get fired. You get fired. You might, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it it just feels different. Because we've worked with people like that too, and you just—it just feels different immediately. Yeah, right? when when you just all the energy leaves the room, and you go, "All right, what was page four? And you just, it just yeah, and you're like, "Oh, this is what this person actually feels. Everything. This is not a right. joke. This is you know, you yeah. you just know, you, and it's not it's not funny, and it's not fun." I never experienced this, but it seems to me trying to be in a writing room on Zoom has to be miserable. Yeah, it's terrible. And to do and the that poor call your mother room where we had never even 
at least with the Upshaws, most of the writers, we had worked in person, and then we were on Zoom. So we all sort of had the same the camaraderie. We knew people. We knew uh, the rhythms. We knew the rhythms. We, knew, we yeah. looked out for people who we knew would be quieter, you know, like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Just going into it, the worst. It's uh, <laughs> what were you saying? What, oh, bad. sorry. I what I uh, huh? What? It, oh, and I think your box lit up. And so, but oh my gosh. as bad as that is, Zoom table reads are the worst thing oh, I've ever are, been to. Oh, I can imagine. It, yeah, the tenth circle of hell is just a Zoom table read. We, especially in in the again early early days where it's just. The actors at home, some of them are on their phones, some of them are on their iPads, and their internet's cutting out, and their headphones don't work. And if you have dual dialogue where two characters talk at the same time, Zoom doesn't allow you to do that, so you can't even get that joke. And if if someone laughs, then their box lights up and it cuts off the dialogue, so then the network can't hear. It's just, at a certain point, we just went, why are we still? doing these these are such a waste of time oh and then the other thing that's terrible about zoom is that uh the all that like camaraderie and you can make these jokes and whatever Mm. feels entirely different on zoom and you're worried about cutting people off and like the other co-ep of call your mother and and i would send each other what we would refer to as like the daily apology text (laughs) where it was like did i cut you off earlier i'm so sorry were you you know no i thought i thought i cut you it's terrible you just and you always feel like did i did i make an offensive joke because you can't tell anything on any any pitch in a normal room, is just you know, pitch and you move on. But on Zoom, your box lights up <laughs> and everybody's mic turns off and you just look at 12 faces staring at you and you go, oh, shit, was this funny? <laughs> Should I not have said this? Oh, and then, you know, somebody gets up to go to the bathroom and you're like, did we offend him? <laughs> we, we were doing season two of The Upshaws and um, one of the sons on the show is gay and we deal with that and we were trying to break... You know, a, a story that – I forget what the story was. We didn't end up doing it. But my mic was on mute and I didn't know. And showrunner and, and I were talking and a couple other writers were talking and I was I was pitching and I was trying to, you know, oh, is this – what would this be like? And I thought, God, they don't want anything I have to say. Like they are just ignoring me. They're – and fi- I forget who finally figured it out, and and I unmuted myself, and I told them everything I had said, and they were like, "We could have been done thirty minutes ago." <laughs> but all these stupid technological things you just Wanda don't it happens think to about. Wanda all the time. Wanda's, Wanda's always, always like, "Oh no, I was muted." And we're like, "What? What, what? did you have?" And she goes, "This." And we go, oh, "Shit, we could be at lunch." <laughs> but then I found out that the showrunner was like. He's he's totally sitting this out. <laughs> he has no, you know, he's just totally checked out. This is this is such crap that he's not like participating in the conversation. Oh, that's how it happened because she sent you a text that was like, "Feel free to jump oh, in yeah. or something." Yeah, and right. you were like, "You've been ignoring me. You've been me. ignoring me for a half an hour." <laughs> and it's just because I didn't hit the space bar when yeah. I came back from the bathroom. And it was like it's just awful. Every part of it is terrible. Well. Good luck on the third season of The Upshaws. Thank you. Thank you. And um, the second half of season two, when is that going to premiere? That's pretty soon, isn't it? I believe I it's February. Yeah, I believe it's February. Yeah, they space them out about six months apart. They've 
the algorithm has determined this is the best way to do it, and so we are all slaves to the algorithm. But they're done. They're done. (laughs) I swear we wrote that. They're funny. They're good. Yeah. But they're sitting on a shelf somewhere. Well, congratulations on that. Congratulations on your beautiful daughter, Charlotte. Who was unhappy? We may have heard her daily <laughs> in the background, but uh, she's beautiful at least. But she is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the perils she of you guys. Yeah. yeah, the perils of marrying your writing partner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, there you go. My two-part interview with Annie Levine and Jonathan Emerson. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, to John Wolford, Bruce and Jason Miller. Uh, I mentioned this last week, but I would love to put together an episode where I answer your Friday questions. So you got to ask them. All you do is email me your questions at hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. You can't follow me on Twitter anymore. I have deactivated my account, but I am on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine, and I have well over 50 of my cartoons posted. So if you, you want to see that aspect of my career, so I draw cartoons for The New Yorker, uh, please follow me on Instagram. Instagram. Hope to see you next week. Hope you're having a very happy holiday season. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Hollywood and the fire.